you know, there's this, there's kind of this issue of, uh, or one of the problems I should say with, with coming up with a really good suggestion and presenting it at a meeting. Do you know what often happens with that? You're the one who gets asked to do it. Have you ever been part of one of those meetings? You come up with this really good idea, you present it. Oh, that's a great idea, Doug. Why don't you go and do that? Great. Well, that's, that's exactly what happened to a man named William Carey. In uh, 1793, William Carey was in London with a large meeting um, of pastors. And William Carey asked this really great question. He said, why are we completely ignoring this huge mission field to our southeast, this place called India? Why don't we send somebody there to, to preach the gospel to all of these millions of lost people? But the problem with coming up with a really great suggestion is that often you're the guy who gets asked to do it, right? And that's what happened to William. William, why don't you go and do this? Awesome. But William was a different kind of person. And William, sorry, I skipped forward a little too far in this. William was a different kind of person. And instead of complaining, he just said, okay, I'll go. And so he packed up his wife. He packed up his, his uh, kids, his comfortable life in London. And he set out for India. He set out for a, a place he didn't know. He set out to live in a, in a place that used a language that he didn't speak. And that's a scary prospect, scary for anybody, especially for a man who's going to be a pastor in a pagan nation. But the one thing that kept driving William was the fact that this was an opportunity to preach the gospel to millions and millions of people who had never been exposed to it, who had never heard of it. And so in, in the fall of 1793, William Carey, he lands in Calcutta. And he heard the babble of languages. He heard, the, or he, he felt and he smelled the hot air that, that reeked of decay and poverty. This was going to be a tough mission field. But it wasn't just going to be a tough mission field simply because it was a pagan nation. It was going to be a tough mission field because it, it, was a, it had a pagan religion that was completely pervasive in the social life. And this meant that if somebody wanted to convert to Christianity, it meant that they were going to have to leave everything behind. It meant that they were going to get ostracized from their family. They, they were going to get kicked out of their uh, community and be left alone on their own. This is what William Carey was walking into. And yet he just got after it. Every single day, he went out into the streets of Calcutta. He went into this, the communities that surrounded Calcutta and he preached the gospel. He told people about Jesus day in and day out for six years. Do you know how many people came to church after six years? Zero. Zero people. William Carey preached law and gospel. He preached about God's arrow pointing down love to all of these people in India. And there was not a single person who came to church, not a single person who came to his version of faith builders class. There's not a single person came to believe in Jesus. Talk about depressing work. I can't imagine. I have to send in uh, missionary reports every week to, or I mean every month to talk about how stuff is going here in Huntersville. I can't imagine every day for six years sending in a report that sounds like this. Well, another day, another week, another year has gone by and we still have had zero people in church. Yours sincerely, Pastor William Carey. Can you imagine that? What a tough thing. I would probably want to give up if that was me after six years. And yet William Carey kept going and going and going for 41 years. For 41 years, he stayed in India and he preached the gospel to people. Why and how? Why would this man, after years of rejection, continue to preach the gospel and have nobody connected to his church, have nobody enrolled in a membership class, have, have seemingly zero results? What would make him so bold as to faithfully proclaim Christ every day like that? Well, that same question can be asked of the man at the very center of our text in Acts chapter 2 this morning, a man named Peter. What made Peter so bold as to stand up in Jerusalem with the rest of the eleven and to preach a sermon like he did, the sermon that eventually gave birth to the Christian church, right? Listen to the sermon that Peter, Pete, or Peter preached. Now, this happens uh, a few verses after what's in your service folder, so you'll only find it up here. 
Peter stands up to the throngs of people who are in Jerusalem, and he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the bonds and agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What gives a man like Peter, timid, fearful Peter, all of the boldness to preach a sermon like this? I mean, after all, look at Peter's track record in the gospel. He doesn't really have the best track record either with Jesus or with his fellow disciples, right? Peter is that disciple who has that constant case of foot and mouth disease throughout the gospels. Right? Peter is the one who, after Jesus said, it is necessary for me to suffer and to die. You remember what Peter says to him? Peter says to Jesus, never, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. This is the guy who, Peter is the guy who on Holy Thursday, the night Jesus is betrayed, Peter tells Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested in the garden. And what does Peter do? He flees. This is the same guy who locks himself in an upper room after Jesus is crucified for fear that the same exact thing is happening to him. And now, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, you have this complete turn, complete and utter turn in Peter. He's no longer this timid, fear-filled, foot-and-mouth-prone guy. Instead, he is standing up, boldly preaching this sermon with his fellow disciples, a sermon that is completely convicting of everybody who is there, everybody in Jerusalem. And let me tell you, this is no small crowd in Jerusalem. This is not just like he's preaching to 11 or 20 or maybe to the 72 that Jesus sent out. No, this is, there were a ton of God-fearing Jews who were in Jerusalem at this time for one of the three traveling festivals that God had appointed his Old Testament people to celebrate. Now, traveling festivals, they were the festivals, as the name might suggest, that people had to leave their town and their country and their city to go into Jerusalem and to celebrate. And so the one that they were here in Jerusalem for 50 days after the Passover was the festival of Pentecost, their harvest festival. And experts conservatively, conservatively estimate that in Jerusalem, when Peter stands up to preach this sermon, that there are over a million people in Jerusalem. This is not preaching to 11. This is not preaching to a room of, I don't know how many are here, 25. This is not preaching to 72. This is Peter preaching to a million plus people. So where does timid, fear-filled, foot-and-mouth disease Peter get all the boldness to preach a sermon like that? Where does your boldness come from? If you'll permit me to be so bold, I, I have to ask a little more nuanced of a question this morning. It's a question that might make you a little uncomfortable, a question that might make you squirm in your seat a little bit, but it's one that's absolutely necessary for us to wrestle with. Instead of me asking, where do you get your boldness from? I need to ask, what keeps you? What keeps you from being bold and carrying out the work like Peter or like William Carey? I don't know if you've ever understood this or have ever even been taught this, but do all of you understand that you have a purpose and a, a responsibility of a mission that's given to you by God? Do you understand that? From the moment, from the moment through a few drops of water and his holy word, God gives you purpose. He completely changes your life around. He made you through water and the word in your baptism, part of his blood-bought family that transcends space and time. And, part of, and being part of God's family when he claimed you as his own means that you are given purpose and responsibility. Your purpose in this life is no longer to please yourself. It's no longer to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. Your purpose in this life is to live a life that loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. With this new purpose, you are to willingly serve God. And part of willingly serving God is to carry out the responsibility of the mission that he's given you. 
Now, God's will in this world is that, do you guys know what God's will in this world is? It's that all men come to, a, men, women, and children come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. This is God's will on earth. And God could absolutely, because he has the power and every right to do so, could work that will out without using any human beings. Absolutely could. But instead, do you know what he does? He chooses men and women and children, like all of you, these cracked clay jars, these sinful people, to participate in building his kingdom. He gives you the privilege of <laughs> kingdom work. And he does so by giving you a mission, a mission that he has given to all believers. And he, the words that he spoke were the words he gave to his disciples on the day he ascended into heaven. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so right now this morning, I'm looking at a room full of people who have been called by God to a specific purpose. I'm looking at a room full of men, women, and children who have given the privilege of carrying out this mission responsibility. And you know, Christians, we're really good at talking about that, right? We're really good at, at sitting in meetings and putting down on paper plans for how we're going to carry out this mission. We're really good at crafting mission statements and putting them up on boards all around and say, yes, this is what we're going to do. It's really easy to talk the talk. But when it comes to mission work, it's really hard to walk the walk, right? Especially when the job, the responsibility, the mission that God has given us is one that our sinful nature stands completely opposed to. And two, the message that we are given to carry out in this mission, or the task that we are given to go and make disciples of all nations, that's one that the world has always stood opposed to. The world just hates, right? And Christians, we're really good, too, at just talking to each other, at being turned inward. It's really easy to walk, to uh, talk to other people who, who walk, talk, and act like you, who are like-minded, who believe similar things. And that's exactly what the disciples were doing in the days leading up to this Pentecost, right? Luke tells us that in the 10 days leading up to Pentecost, the disciples were continuously in the temple praising God and building each other up. That's great. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say, because being in a temple and praising God continuously, that is a good thing. That is a God-pleasing thing. And that's what we're doing here this morning, right? We're praising God. It's also a good thing to be together with each other like you are here this morning, to be with each other to, for mutual edification and for the building up of your faith. But, but if that is the only thing if that's the only thing that we have our hearts set on, is being with each other, you know what we're doing? We're neglecting the purpose and the God-given mission that God has asked us to carry out. That's the hard thing, right? It's easy to talk to each other. It's easy to be with each other. It's hard to go out there. It's hard to be bold, to be a bold proclaimer of Jesus in a world that stands opposed to you. And, you know, from personal experience, I can tell you that my sinful nature is great. It's great at coming, without, coming up with all sorts of excuses as to why I shouldn't go out there and do that, why I shouldn't go knock on doors or invite a friend to church. Right? And all of, these, all of these excuses that I come up with, they're all, they all stem from, uh, or all have their roots in the very fact that my sinful nature is completely opposed to God. It spits in the face of everything that God has asked me to do. And Satan knows this, doesn't he? Like you felt this all in your own heart when Satan tugs at you and says, ah, this isn't quite worth it. Because Satan knows that if he can keep you from carrying out this mission, he can, certainly carry out, he can certainly keep other people from carrying it out. And if he keeps people from carrying out, that's less people who hear the word of God. And the less people who hear the word of God, that's less people who are in the kingdom of God. And then on the last day, that's more people for him who are lost to eternal damnation than hell. Right? So what keeps you from being bold? Your sinful nature latches onto this idea that maybe, you know, like things like Peter or William Carey did, that they're just not your responsibility. They're the responsibility of maybe this person who's been a member at the church longer or who, or who has been a Christian longer or 
or maybe they just fall, that responsibility to carry out this mission just simply falls to the guy who's standing in front of you, falls to your pastor. Or maybe because your sinful nature, and I know mine is, your sinful nature is so prideful and it, it completely fears rejection, you just avoid this kind of purpose and mission work altogether because you know what it brings. You've all experienced that. You invite a friend to church once or twice and they tell you no. You knock on a door with me. I know a handful of you have done this. Knock on a door with me and you get door after door slammed in your face. You get that angry old lady who wants nothing to do with you and she tells you, yells at you to get off her porch, right? Like you hate that rejection. So you just say, nope, I'm going to leave that to pastor. Or I'm going to leave that to other people. Or maybe at the very least, you just feel like this God-given purpose and responsibility of a mission that God has given to you, you're just not equipped enough to do it. You don't know every minute point of doctrine. You're not going to be able to answer every single question that God has given to you, or I mean that uh, somebody at the door or your friend has for you, and you don't know every passage and verse in Scripture, so you just say, not for me. I've been there. I've made those excuses, and I want all of you to know this this morning, that all of the unfaithful neglect that we have to our purpose and to the mission that God has given us, all of the sinful excuses that we come up with for not doing this work, they're all sins that Jesus took to the cross. And they're all sins for which all of you are forgiven. And this morning, I, I want all of you with me to take all of those sins and lay them at Jesus' feet. And when you do that, you know what you're going to find? Not only are you going to find the Savior who loves you, but you're going to find out that you are completely and fully forgiven. And sitting at, the, at Jesus' feet, I want you to, to bow your heads with me and pray this prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so sorry for all of the, the neglect and the sinful excuses I come up with that when I look at the, the purpose that you have given me and the, and the mission that you have given me to carry out. I, I ask for your forgiveness for all of these. And this morning, I also ask for your help. I ask that you would give me boldness, boldness to be this proclaimer to your world, to be your mouthpiece to, to a world that is lost and condemned. And I, I don't just ask that you give me boldness. I ask that you place me in positions in which I can put this boldness to work, that I can give your message of Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. You know, even with all of that, even with the recognition of all of the excuses that we come up with, uh, our unfaithful neglect of, of this mission, I said there's still that unanswered question, right? There's still that question that needs to be answered. I've asked it three different times. What makes you bold? Where does all of this boldness come from to carry out this work? Where did Peter get his boldness from when he stood up and preached this sermon that gave birth to the Christian church? Where did William Carey get all of his boldness from to work for 41 years in India? Well, the answer is given to us in Acts chapter 2. Listen to what Dr. Luke writes. He says that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The answer's in there. It's right there. The thing that made Peter, the thing that makes William Carey, the thing that makes you bold is the gift that Jesus poured out on Pentecost. And it wasn't the tongues of fire, or I mean the, the sound of the blowing wind. That's not the gift, but it shows that the gift arrived. The, the tongues of fire, they aren't the gift, but it showed that the gift was there. The, the gift that Jesus poured out wasn't the speaking in tongues, although that was a result of the gift. The gift is this. All of them 
were filled with the Holy Spirit. The gift is Jesus fulfilling his promise and pouring out his spirit on all people. The real miracle of Pentecost is Jesus' transformative gift of the Holy Spirit that turns timid, fearful, foot-and-mouth, disease-prone disciples into God's mouthpieces, God's bold proclaimers of sin and grace to the world. That's the miracle of Pentecost. And that same spirit that God poured out on Pentecost is the same spirit that God poured out on you when through a few drops of water in his powerful word, he made you his own dear child in the waters of baptism. It is that spirit. It is that spirit that created a faith in your heart which trusts the God who lived and died for you. That same spirit that fills your heart, that creates a faith that trusts in the God who who gives you purpose and mission. It's the faith that trusts in the God who calls you and equips you and sends you out. That faith that God has given you, a trust that you are actually equipped to do this work, no matter how unequipped you feel. Because what does it mean to actually be equipped to be a bold proclaimer like Peter or William Carey? I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you know every minute point of doctrine. It doesn't mean that you can rattle off every passage and, and chapter and book of Scripture. Because if that is what qualified somebody to be a mission pastor or to be a bold witness of Jesus, I certainly wouldn't be standing up here. The reality is the spirit that Jesus poured out on you in your baptism enables you to understand it, unlocks the message of the gospel that was previously a mystery to you when you were still dead in your sins. This spirit that is poured out on you, on all people, it unlocks this mystery of the gospel and helps you to see how beautiful and beautifully simplistic it is. And it's a message that you all know and it's a message I want you to repeat with me this morning. You ready? Jesus loves me. me. He He died for my sins. Jesus loves me. Heaven is mine. mine. How easy is that? No matter how simple and beautifully simplistic it is, that's the message that Jesus wants you to take out into the world. That is the message that heals each and every one of your hearts day after day, week after week. That is the message that reassures you that heaven is yours because Jesus died on the cross to forgive all of your sins. And that is what Jesus wants you to boldly take out into the world. That doesn't require you to know every minute detail of doctrine or of scripture. The message is simple, and you can be bold with that simple message. The other thing that that your faith, the faith that God created in your heart when he poured out the Holy Spirit on you through baptism, the other thing that that does is it enables you to trust this, that the power to convert people's souls from damnation to eternity, the power to win souls for Jesus, the power to build God's kingdom, it doesn't come from the words that you speak, right? It comes from God. It is not your job to browbeat somebody over the head with the gospel to try to get them and convince them that this is what they should believe in. You never have the power to do that. You'll never convince somebody that way. That is is and always has been and always will be God's job. Because the power to convert somebody, it doesn't come from your wise or persuasive words. It doesn't come from eloquent speech. The power to convert a soul so that we will see them in heaven someday, it comes from the power that God attaches to that simple message that I just had you repeat with me. That Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. And heaven stands open. That's where the power comes from. And understanding that, understanding that the power to build God's kingdom doesn't come from you, but it comes from God. And it comes from the power that God attaches to that word. It totally changes the way you look at bold mission work, right? Because with that in mind, you no longer fear any sort of rejection. You no longer fear having to know every single detail. And you know that you're well equipped. Because look, the reality is being a bold proclaimer of Jesus out in that world, It means that you will face rejection. People will be angry at you. People will shove you off their doorsteps and tell you to shove it. People will slam doors in your face. But do you know why that is? 
It's because their sinful nature is opposed to the gospel message. They're not angry at you, no matter how mad they might look. They're not slamming the door on you. What they're doing is slamming the door on the gospel. That's going to happen. So knowing that, knowing that God has equipped you and prepared you and told you that that stuff is going to happen, go out and be bold. Go out and be bold knowing that's going to happen because it's worth it for that one soul, that one soul that you reach, that you tell about Jesus, whom God works through that powerful word and wins them for the kingdom. It's not your job to convert a soul. Your job, your responsibility, your purpose is to take that message out into the world. It's God's job to work through that message. And let me tell you, he does it time and time and time again. He did so with William Carey. Right after seven years of of really hard preaching the gospel day after day, week after week, both God and William Carey rejoiced at the first converted Christian in India, a man named Krishna Paul. And he didn't give up after just one. He kept on preaching the gospel, boldly proclaiming, this, boldly proclaiming Jesus crucified for their sins for 41 years. And do you know how many people were there at the end? How many Christians were there at the end? 700. Small start. Huge finish. And nearly 300 years later, do you know how many people, how many Christians live in India today? 28 million. 28 million and counting. 28 million people who will stand side by side to us in front of the throne of God when that last day comes. Look, you weren't there when the sound of the the violent wind filled the house on Pentecost. You didn't have tongues of fire descend on your head, but you were there when you heard those drips of water and you heard those words spoken in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And on that day in your baptism, God gave you the power to fulfill the purpose and the mission that he has given you. And he says, come and be my mouthpiece to the world. Come and be the tool that I use to plant my flag in the hearts of sinful men, the flag of my kingdom. Right? What's stopping us? There should be absolutely nothing. So let's go out there. Let's go out there and be bold. Let's go out there and fulfill the purpose and the mission that God has given us with this spirit-filled boldness, preaching Jesus to the world. God grant it. Amen.